but then also what he himself came into the world to do. Jesus didn't come into the world just to fill pages of writing so that 2,000 years later, his followers can say, oh yeah, that's great that Jesus said this. Let's do that then. Jesus came into the world because he was on a mission from his heavenly father. And so as we're coming into this section of the Gospel of John, what you're finding is that his mission is starting to come to fruition. When I say fruition, it doesn't mean that his mission is fully complete in the sense of, as we even sang the song just now, we look ahead to the return of Christ and the culmination of everything that God will bring when he vanquishes death and sin forever, when he throws Satan and his demons into the lake of fire, when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth, when we're able, as the bride of Christ, be with Jesus, the bridegroom, forever, face to face. No more sin, no more tears, no more sickness, no more brokenness. That day is still coming. We look for that. We pray for that. We yearn for that. So in that sense, you can say that the mission is not yet fulfills in a sense of, well, there's still more to look forward to. But in terms of what allows even that hope to be real, as real as your hand, if you hold it in front of you, as real as the, you know, the, the jacket you have on, as real as the, the rain that's going to fall on your head when you go back outside, is because of what Jesus came and did and fulfilled the first time on mission. That he came, that he died a sinner's death that he didn't deserve, but that he was then raised into glory and that he established a church to be a vibrant group of disciple makers that are then able to do so locally and then globally. So we're on mission because Jesus did his mission. We're able then to go on mission because we're not talking about ourselves and we're not trying to make our own plans and we're not trying to you know, outsmart other people. We're just going in obedience because Christ told us and he promises us that he will finish his work in and through us. So that's what missions is all about. And I hope that then afterwards, after service, that you will stop by Hope Plaza, check out some of the organizations. Uh, I'm going to be representing there. I'll be representing YSMP. So come and say hello. There's a short little video. That's all I have for people. I have a video of last year's team singing praises, hanging out with students, and just uh, having fun with each other. And that's a lot of why it is that we're being sent you know, to the churches in Arizona. So uh, come in and say hi. Come and uh, meet one another. If you have any questions, be glad to engage with you. But today is meaningful because Christ came and fulfilled his mission first. Now, being that this topic is in a particular context, in a particular area in a particular geographical location, well, I wanted to be able to share some photos with you. Part of my sabbatical is I went to these places that the Bible story talks about today during my sabbatical. I was in Israel for about 10 days. Well, I mean, more like eight and a half because of air, airfare and stuff, planes. But I was there. And so I was at the places where the Bible references. And so I wanted to actually then introduce this message through some photos of what I was able to see and also how it connects to the biblical timeline. Whoa. Now, the Bible, the text of it, will be up on the slides in front of you, but it's also in your bulletin, which is there so that you don't get distracted. Please continue to keep your phones off, and if they're too big of a distraction, just put it underneath your seat. Uh, you're not going to miss it. Let's use this time to focus on the Lord. And if you miss it a little bit, that's okay too. Let's still use this time to focus on the Lord. All right, so where are we looking at here in the course of the Bible story? Um, can you push? It's not. Okay. Well, in the start of chapter 18, verse 1, which was just read to you guys, 
Uh, this is a transitional verse that tells us where we are. So John writes, when Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. The background picture is actually now present day in the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden. Okay, now we don't know if this is exactly the same garden, but this is where if you were to go visit the site of Gethsemane, then you will see this garden. And there's a lot of tourists that go and visit. Uh, there's a lot of people, you know, you can't go in it. It's kind of fenced off, but there's a lot of, um, you know, trees there, a lot of olive trees, a lot of rocks and dirt. Uh, Israel has a ton of that. But let's go ahead and see why that's important in terms of where it was. Let's go to the next slide. So what do you see here is from the perspective of Jerusalem, so, you know, we talk about where the temple was. We talk about, you know, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, you know, to start, you know, uh, Passion Week, to start Palm Sunday. He walked into Jerusalem. I'm on the Jerusalem side. Do you see how there's like a hill on the farther side? That's a hill called the Mount of Olives. At the foot of that hill is Gethsemane. Okay, we'll get a closer look soon. But you see that how there's like a valley that runs through? That's the Kidron Valley. Okay, so the city of Jerusalem has the Kidron Valley on the east side, and it has another valley on the west side, and they meet at the bottom, and then they run into the sea. Okay, so a lot of times when you hear about Jerusalem and how people go up to Jerusalem, it's because Jerusalem's on a hill. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, so now I'm on, standing on the Mount of Olives side. Now I'm looking across. You see how there's like a little gold kind of a cap, a little gold dome? That dome is a mosque, um, and that mosque right now is standing on where the temple was in Jesus' time. You see kind of a wall around that? That wall is still the foundation wall of an entire platform where buildings were built on top of it. But the temple is there no more. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And this is actually how Bible prophecy was fulfilled as well. And if you remember, Jesus said, not one stone will be left on top of another when he was referencing the temple. It's because it was destroyed in 70 AD. But I'm standing now on top of the Mount of Olives. Well, okay, not all the way on top, but like up the Mount of Olives. And I'm looking across, and the perspective is the opposite. It's the flip of the first picture, where I was standing on the wall side looking across to Mount of Olives. Now I'm on the Mount of Olives looking back at the original picture. Okay, so when you look at then that particular dome, if you can imagine that's where the temple was, then Jesus would have walked into the Kidron Valley down, and then walked up the Mount of Olives, okay? But it's, it's very walkable. In fact, people walk now. If you're wondering what those, like, boxes are, um, those are just a bunch of graves. And the reason why is because according to Jewish tradition, and they're still waiting for the Messiah, right? They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're still waiting for the Messiah, and they believe that the Messiah will come down right in that area, okay? Mount of Olives, he'll come down. So they wanted the grave that was the closest as possible to where the Messiah will come, and then they would be able to see and experience that first. They would be able to be there to be a part of the resurrection when the Messiah finally comes. So on both sides, on, on this side of Mount of Olives, a lot of Jewish graves. On the opposite side, it's interesting. They actually have a lot of Muslim graves because they're trying to put their graves there to say, oh, no, we're going to stop the Messiah, whom we don't believe. They believe that Muhammad was the final prophet and all that is necessary for revelation. Anyway, let's keep going. All right, so when I said that it's walkable, that's the road that we will walk down from Gethsemane 
down, you can see the valleys right underneath there, and then you can see the dome at the top. It's walkable. In fact, uh, it would probably take about, I would say, an hour to walk from like where Gethsemane is back up. Most people don't do that. Uh, people take buses, and, and they kind of find their way there. But when I went to Israel 12 years ago, I actually walked it. So we walked across the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives. It probably takes about an hour. It's a really nice walk. And then you see a lot more really cool tombstones and graves on the way. Um, but you can see, I mean, that's me walking. You just walk down and you go up into Jerusalem. If you flip it, Jesus and his disciples are walking from Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley and then going up to Gethsemane. Uh, on the right, then, is a particular olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane, the modern-day version. And I just thought it was you know, kind of a cool thing to take a picture of. Um, they had swelled on stones piece. And I, I think you know, the cry of our hearts, probably, as human beings, is we want peace. Um, but then the Bible teaches us that the Prince of Peace is the one who came and died for us and is risen and alive today. Uh, he is the one that actually can bring real peace in our hearts in our lives, in history and eternity, okay? But that's an olive tree. So that's an example of, you know, where Jesus would have been praying near or where Jesus would be praying around. And olive trees are everywhere in Israel. Okay, let's go to the next slide. All right, so this is the church that's actually built on, right, adjacent to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a pretty big church. It's the Church of All Nations. Um, and then it, it's lots of tourists, lots of visitors. But if you see on the inside, they were actually having a service there when I was there. Uh, and then in the background, you can see that, you know, it, it's where it's, re, the painting is reenacting uh, Jesus praying at Gethsemane. And so all that's to say is that there's been a lot of um, monumenting of this event that we're about to read in John 18. That this is a very significant event, that there are specific places that people have identified. But then more than so much, oh, it's all about this place. It's the fact that the life and ministry of Jesus is historical. It's like physical. It happened in a time. It happened amongst a people. It happened in a place. And so Jesus came to our world, and we can actually see ways by which he was present and ways in which he could relate to us. And that's important because what we're going to see as Jesus is about to go on this mission and finish the final leg of this part of the mission, that what he is doing prepares the way for us. Okay, he's not just doing this so that the tension's on him. He does the things that he does so that he makes a way for us, so that we can know him, so that we can relate to him, so that we can go on the mission that he has set out for us. And so today the, the message is, is broken up into three parts. We're going to call Jesus the master, okay, because then it matches with um, you know, the, the other part of uh, the, the points, that each part is an M. So we're going to look at the master's mission, so why did he come? Let's talk about that. What exactly was Jesus' mission? Okay, We're going to talk then about the master's method. What did he do? How did he do it? And then finally, the master's missionaries. And spoiler alert, that's you guys and, and me. If we're followers of Jesus, we are Jesus' missionaries. Just like his disciples were called to be disciple makers, those of us that come 2,000 years later that put our faith in Christ because of his mission being accomplished on the cross and him being alive today, we are his missionaries. And so the master's mission, the master's method, and the master's missionaries. Let's go to the next slide. All right. So these are the very first three verses uh, that were read. And so 
Starting at the beginning of, chap- of verse 1, it says, When Jesus has spoken these words, then he took this trip across the Kidron Valley into Gethsemane, right? Well, there was a lot that John didn't talk about here that actually Mark, Matthew, and Luke talked about. Those three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because they see the stories and they use the stories that are very similar to each other, okay? So what did they talk about that John leave out? Well, there were a few things. So Judas had left a room. So we know this from John. Judas left a room, right? But then at that time, Jesus said, okay, guys, you guys are going to desert me. And of course, Peter's like, oh, no, that would never happen. I would never desert you. And then all of the disciples said, oh, never, Jesus. We will go to our deaths. We will never desert you. And then Jesus doubled down and said, no, Peter, you're going to desert me and you're going to deny me three times. Okay, so John doesn't record this, but the other three gospels do. So it's kind of tense right now. This walk to Gethsemane is a little tense. You're not just kind of everyone singing a happy song and everyone's getting along. Jesus called out his disciples and said, hey, you might think you're loyal. You're not. You're going to betray me or not the same way Judas did. You're going to betray me in the sense of denying me. And then Peter's like trying to fight for his friends saying, oh, never. But he will. So there's already that kind of tension as they're making this trip to Gethsemane. Uh, Alongside of that, you know, this is a place that they're familiar with. This is a place that usually they go to pray, to sing, and to worship. This is a place in which, you know, they've shared many good memories there because Jesus was the master and they were the disciples and they spent many nights and many days just learning and growing and praying there. And so it almost seems like everything was normal. This is a normal trip that they would have taken from Jerusalem to Gethsemane to spend time together, to pray and to talk and to share. But everything is far from normal. Everything from this point on is going to be extremely abnormal. And the walk is not very, very long. On top of that, Judas had already left. The disciples weren't exactly sure what's going on. But Judas is already rounding up this little army of people, of Roman soldiers, to come and take Jesus down. And so, I mean, as Jesus is leading his disciples on this walk, I mean, this is not an ordinary day at all. Let's go on in verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, I know that this is probably not exactly what happened, but in my head, I just can't get out the picture you know, of like the mob trying to kill the beast in Beauty and the Beast. That's kind of what I imagine. You know, they got like their like scary faces on. They got like their, you know, you know, kind of like all this like camouflage and like, the, like these like army things and they're carrying torches and they're, you know, carrying their weapons and they're ready to take down the beast. I think that the sentimentality is the same. I think that the people that Judas has rounded up want to take Jesus down. The betrayal is now just working itself out. The heart has already turned, but the betrayal is now happening in the actual people and the actual actions and the actual collection of weapons and soldiers. And so you see this is coming. The disciples are following Jesus to a normal place. This army, small army, is coming alongside to meet Jesus that they don't see yet, but Jesus knows is coming. Now, how does this relate then to Jesus' mission? 
Well, Jesus, knowing this, then also knew that there's going to be an end result to an army coming to seize him, an army of people that are not happy with him, led by a betrayer who had walked among Jesus' band of brothers for three and a half years, but now has completely turned and is going to sell him out. There's nothing good that will come from this. Jesus, knowing what he knows, did not have to go to the place where Judas and all the disciples were familiar with. The reason why Judas knew is because they always go there. That's why they took the people there. Jesus will be there. That's why you soldiers, you guys should come. Jesus was going to meet his death simply by showing up. He didn't have to go this way, but it revealed something then about the nature of his mission. See, Jesus came into Jerusalem as a king in terms of how he was welcomed. But he knows that the week is going to end with being, him being killed as a criminal. How can this be the mission ever set, af- set apart for a king? It makes no sense. That's not honoring a king. That's not respecting a king. That's not serving a king to kill the king. But see, it reveals that this is really the reason why Jesus came into the world. Jesus didn't come to live to establish a kingdom that he sits on the throne of earthly forever and that everyone could bow to him like an earthly king. Jesus came because he was obedient to his heavenly father who said that he was going to send a savior for his people, that his people were lost in sin. They were selfish. They were rebellious. They deserve to be punished by a righteous and holy God. But instead of sending every single image bearer of his to hell for eternity, separation from him for eternity, he prophesied from the very first act of the fall when God was speaking against the serpent to say, there will be the seed of a woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And that person will indeed accomplish the job of reconciling, and bring together sinners back to me again. Well, that person is Jesus. Jesus came to the world to die. That is not a very hopeful thing to think about. We don't think or want that really for anyone that we love, that their purpose is to die. But that actually was Jesus' mission. He came to die so that Sinners could be redeemed and reconciled to God. See, God is both just and he is loving. And those two come together in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that's his mission. He came to do what no one else can do because he is God. But he also came to do what everyone needed, which is for us to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Let's go to the next slide. So what is then Jesus, our master's method? Let me start reading here in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. This was his opportunity to uh, say something else. 
This was his chance to get out of it. They could not have been more specific in who they wanted, and he could not be more clear in that it was him. But notice something here. What was Jesus' method? Well, he wasn't playing games, was he? Jesus does not play games in the way that we play games. He wasn't trying to kind of make them guess, you know, kind of, st- like kind of stump them. He wasn't trying to, like, you know, make them come up with the best question or, oh, wait, what do you mean by that? Are you saying this or that? What do you mean? Jesus initiated this. Jesus said, hey, you small army of people who don't look very friendly and are a little angry and are holding torches and want to kill me. Who are you here to seek? He could have snuck out the back door. He could have hid behind an olive tree. He was the one that stepped forward and said, whom do you seek? Talk about a death wish. This is the death wish. So then his answer made sense because he sought out this encounter in the first place. He knew what was going to happen. He was not afraid. He was not surprised. He was bold. He was clear. And that's why you see Judas was with him, standing with him. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I think it's very possible that they actually stumbled a little bit and and backed down a little bit and kind of skipped a little bit because, wait, are you serious? You knew we're coming to get you, but you're not afraid? And so in verse 7, just to make sure he was clear, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Very specific. There are a lot of Jesuses at that time, but there was one well-known Jesus of Nazareth. They knew who they were looking for. They might not know what he looked like. They knew who he was looking for. Later on, we find that Judas gives him a kiss, right? That's in the other Gospels to identify him. But they knew who they wanted, and he was not afraid. You know, this confidence is not like like a macho kind of confidence, like, oh, look at how manly I am in a worldly kind of sense. This is a confidence that is one that is anchored in the willingness to sacrifice and serve. In other words, I'm stepping forward to do the hard thing. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I'm stepping forward, look at how brave I am, how courageous I am so that you could praise me. He's saying, I'm stepping forward to do the thing that I'm supposed to do on mission. Do you guys remember back in John 10? Now, there's a, a lot of I am statements in the Gospel of John that Jesus refers to himself. There's seven, actually, That's, that most people acknowledge. There's seven. But in John 10, he says this. One of the I am's that I love the most, he says, I am the good shepherd. So not just a shepherd who has sheep, but he's a good shepherd. Like, he loves his sheep right? It goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He then goes on in verse 18 to say, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. John 10 verse 11 and verse 18. So what are you seeing here then in John 18? 
you're seeing Jesus keeping his word. He's the one that said, hey, who are you looking for? Didn't beat around the bush. Didn't try to hide. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, that's me. Come get me. I'm the guy. Come get me. But what is the purpose for that? It's because he is one, fulfilling his father's mission. Two, he is protecting his sheep. We'll see that at the end of this passage. He is not going to have his sheep get hurt because of him. Now, his sheep, most of which, especially the first disciples, most of them died for their faith in terrible ways. But see, that's because they followed Jesus all the way to death. But at that moment, when it was about Jesus going to the cross to save and rescue sinners, the only one who would have that mission, he was not going to let the disciples get hurt. He was going to take care of them. He was the good shepherd, and he will lay down his life for the sheep. That is a leader. That is a shepherd. That is a servant. See, so the confidence and the boldness doesn't come from the fact that he's trying to make the disciples think something great of him. It's because he actually keeps his word. That he says that I am the good shepherd. These are my sheep. I love them. I will protect them. I will die for them. And this is what the Father has sent me to do. You are seeing this now happening in John 18. Let's go to the next slide. Next slide, please. So we're looking at the master's missionaries then to end. This is now the connection to the disciples themselves, starting from verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Thank you, Jesus, the good shepherd, for showing us what leadership and love looks like. He was out to protect his disciples. He was willing to go to the cross. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. His disciples will be preserved from this. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Never meet anyone named Malchus. Maybe that's not a cool name to have. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? All right, you might be wondering, how does this connect to the disciples and to us as the master's missionaries? Let me try to connect the thread to get you there. First of all, we said this earlier, he is the good shepherd. He's protecting his sheep. He's protecting his disciples. So right there, it does cover the lives of the missionaries, the disciple makers, in that, hey, I'm saving them for something. They will go on behalf of me to proclaim the gospel to the nations. They will go. And many people will come to repent and believe in me because of them. And then many generations and many cultures and many countries and many contexts will hear the gospel and repent and believe and trust in me. So I got them. Okay, I'm going to the cross. This is the front part of the mission. They will carry out the rest of my mission after I am raised from the dead. But remember, there's some things that John didn't cover. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Do you know what the disciples were doing in Gethsemane? Well, this is a difficult time, right? And Jesus knew that. And he knew that the most important thing he could do is go to his father and to pray. So he did. 
he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed, which is what a lot of the times when they hung out, they did. They prayed together. They sang together. They learned together. They taught together. They read together. You know what I mean? But then, one by one, the disciples started nodding off and falling asleep. Like some here. It's okay. I want to share this with you. Um, I had a pastor friend. Um, he uh, told me, he said, whenever I look into the congregation and I see somebody sleeping, I just think he is in the sweet arms of his heavenly father. And so when I watch people sleeping, I'm like, hey, may, may the heavenly father hold you near and close so you feel warm and fuzzy and, and, uh, and are enveloped by his love. Um, so it's okay. Uh, anyway. But the disciples, one by one, they started falling asleep, okay? So that at the very end, Jesus is like praying by himself. So he goes to pray. He first brings Peter, James, and John. They hang with him. He comes back. And then he goes, okay, I'm going to go pray again. Stay awake, okay, guys, because he's preparing them for the people that are coming. Stay awake. He comes back. They're out. So he's like, come on, really? I mean, come on, you know, help a brother here. So stay awake. He goes to pray one more time. He comes back, they're out again. Just unreliable. You know, you just can't depend on the disciples, right? I mean, they, not only are they going to deny me, not only are they going to run away, not only are they going to fall asleep when I tell them to stay awake, they can't do anything right, right? Verse 8. If you seek me, let these men go. Look at who Jesus protects. He's not protecting people because they've, like, become, like, the green berets of, like, you know, fighting and, like, they're not, like, like the, the best, like, you know, pastors and theologians and speakers. They're not, like, the people that are most gifted or, like, the CEOs or, like, the... These are just his friends. Remember Jesus calling them that, right? He had a mission for them. He loved them. He says, let them go you sleepers, <laughs> you forsakers, you deniers, you sinners. Let them go. God's wrath is supposed to fall on me. Let them go. So right there, man, uh, it's beautiful to see that we're, not only are we not better than the disciples in so many ways, the disciples weren't that great, but that was never the point. It's because Jesus chose them, and that was enough. Jesus chose them, so he will protect them. Let them go, he says to these soldiers. If you guys remember, you know, part of, I want to weave this in because I, I think it matters. But when we're talking about God's sex and relationships in Yokoi, we always go back to a foundation of what God created and intended human beings to be, Right? So he created male and female. They're distinct. They're different in terms of who they are biologically, spiritually, emotionally. Not that there's only a male way sometimes, you know, some to feel or interest or culture. That we have to break a little bit because sometimes we can share different interests and, you know, carry ourselves in different ways but still maintain our masculinity and femininity in Christ. But God made male and female different and he then put them together as husband and wife, united in every way, in covenant love, anchored in him, so that they could be a shadow and a reflection of Jesus and the church. 
So the human marriage, which never lasts forever, is meant to point people to God's eternal and greater love for the bride of Christ, in Christ forever. So it's supposed to point to an eternal truth, okay, human marriage. But it's not the end all, it's not everything, but it's meant to be beautiful and set apart, okay? Do you remember how the fall happened in Genesis 3? So creation, husband and wife, family, marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. Do you guys remember what happened in Genesis 3 in the fall? Well, the serpent starting talking, making Adam and Eve question God, right? Are you sure you're not supposed to eat this fruit? Are you sure you're not supposed to have this? Are you sure you're not supposed to know and be everything God is? Come on, why would a good God make you not as good as him or not as powerful as him? Are you sure? And so then Eve, in the garden, took the fruit and trusted in a lie. Why do I point that out? It's because that happened in the garden and that happened because the first Adam didn't speak up and the first Adam wasn't bold. The first Adam didn't push back on the lie and the first Adam hid. That's why Eve fell and then he contributed to the sin by falling himself and eating of the fruit. What do you see here then in Jesus? He is the true and better Adam. That in a garden of anguish and suffering that's coming, in a garden in which his authority and his livelihood is being challenged in every way by people that are set on taking him down, what does he do? No, you guys are looking for me. Leave my people alone. And he does this to fulfill God's mission for him. The first Adam failed miserably. The second Adam fulfilled everything that God's image bearers needed to be restored to him again. And both of these things happened in the garden. God orchestrates these things. So then that relates to us, right? Now, we're called to make disciples of all nations, take the gospel to where people have not trusted in Jesus, share our lives with them, to call them to repentance and faith, and then to build up the local church. That's the Great Commission in a nutshell. The local church then teaches us as a church family how to follow Jesus together. And we're one big family in Christ, even though sometimes, you know, there's weird members and different members and funny members and you know, smelly members of our church family. We're one spiritual family in Christ, okay? That's a beautiful thing. We are meant to be the people that God has put together to continue on this mission. But here's the thing. You might look at this passage. You might go, oh, man, I could never do what Jesus did. And I want to tell you, that's right. You can't do what Jesus did. You were never supposed to do what Jesus did. This is the cup that the Father has given to him. Only one person could die for the sins of all mankind. Only one person could live a perfect life. Only one person could please our Heavenly Father in our place so that when we put our faith in him, that our Heavenly Father is pleased with us. Only one person can do this. That is 
the cup then that Jesus was called to drink, which led to his crucifixion. But we are called to follow him, and we are called to do so in love. We are called to do so not with power, but we are called to do so like him in sacrifice, servanthood, and care for those that he has sent our way. What Peter did would have made sense to us, right? Hey, don't mess with my master. <laughs> Cut off the ear. I love to see that the real of that when we go to heaven. I love to see just kind of how that went down. But Jesus in the other gospels actually talked about how he not only told Peter, hey, this is not the way. It's not through forcing someone to be a Christian, forcing someone to believe the gospel, forcing them to live the way that we do without actually experiencing the forgiveness and the newness that the Holy Spirit gives to us. But in the other Gospels, Jesus actually healed the right ear of Malchus. He healed him. He restored him. That doesn't mean that he was saved and rescued from his sin. But see, Jesus did what was actually easier for him. Right? Yeah, here you go. I think that's helpful for us as the missionaries of our master to see, hey, you know what? You could try to force people into living or saying that they're Christians, or you could just do as Jesus did and be that servant leader that's willing to be bold, that's willing to continue to point people to God's word and his promises, that prepares himself in prayer, that is selfless, that is looking out for others. That is what we're able to do. And you notice that that sounds a lot like what Jesus said, right, when he was summarizing the law. What are the two great commandments of the law according to Jesus? Love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do those things, you preach the gospel, people will come to Christ, even the most unlikeliest of his people. All right, let's go to the next slide. Here's the big idea, and then I want to share some closing applications. The big idea is this. Jesus engaged his mission willingly with boldness out of love, for his heavenly father and for us, the future disciple makers. It began with the first 11, but it has then continued on to us. Okay, let me say that again. The big idea is this. Jesus engaged his mission willingly with boldness out of love for his heavenly father and future disciple makers. Okay, I'll leave that there for a moment. And here are some ways by which you can apply this. Number one, more important than anything you do, it always comes back to who you know. If you hear about this Jesus who willingly and boldly went to the cross to save you from your sins so that you may be reconciled to God, be restored to the God who made you, but then also can live a new life that ends and culminates in eternity with him, but you have not put your faith in Jesus, that's the most important thing for you to consider this morning. Just because some of you have been coming to church your whole lives, or you've been sitting in youth service for years, or you grew up in families that are Christians, or you have friends you know, that love Christian music, that doesn't mean that you yourself are a follower of Jesus. 
it always begins with who you know. And the most important person to know is Christ. It's most important to know this Jesus who then fulfills his mission, calls us to mission, and wants us to be restored to our Heavenly Father and for us to be forgiven of our sins. And so if that is you, please, you know, now after service, you know, talk to your, your youth counselor, talk to your friend, you know, talk to me. I'll be here a little bit after service or, or maybe not because I think I'm going to the Hope Center. Come talk to me at Hope Center so you can watch the video about YSMP uh, and see who's in there so that you could make that decision and to follow Jesus. If you are a Christian, though, a follower of Jesus, then you should think about, wait, how am I trusting and obeying Jesus? Notice how Jesus wrestled even in Gethsemane. He knew that going to the cross and the separation from God and the pain and the suffering was real. He knew that he was going towards an extremely awful ending for someone who made the world as a part of the Trinity. It's going to be bad. It's going to be the worst. He knew this, and he wrestled with it in Gethsemane. The other Gospels talk about how he wept with tears of blood. That was how intense his anguish was. But he trusted and obeyed God. That would be then, if you're a Christian, how can you know God's will through his word? How can you grow a life in a rhythm of worship and prayer? How can you grow in your relationship with God so that you can trust and obey him? Think of one area of your life that would be helpful as a next step. And then finally, if you're walking with the Lord, you're part of you know, this band of people that are following Jesus around like his disciples, right? And Jesus is protecting you, watching over you, leading you. Then the next step would be go with Jesus on mission. Start where you are. You know, I, I want to just kind of jump on what the moderator said about your outreach weeks in Diamond Bar and in Roland High School. If you go to those schools, the clear next step you could take is just to show up at the outreach week. You know, ask the student leaders, hey, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I pray? Who can I bring? Take that step. These are your friends or people that God has called you to, even if they are not your friends. Just be there. You know, don't be like, oh, yeah, my church is doing something, someone, you know, go, you know, talk to somebody. Be there. Be on mission with Jesus. For some of you guys, it might be considering going to YSMP this summer, even though we have a space capacity. Maybe that would be something you can consider. But if for some reason those two, you know, are less than what you want to do or you want to do more, you know what? That's what Vacation Bible School could be for you guys. We're here an entire week. We're camped out on campus at the end of June just to build relationships with the families and the communities that are near us. And there's ways in which, especially as students, you could serve. Right here in our home where we open up our facility to the community, that could be how you can go on mission with Jesus. So think about that. Think about your next step in following Jesus and growing with Jesus and in going on mission with Jesus. And that's the very, very last slide there, which I think you're fine. Um, all right, so with that, let me close in prayer, and then we'll end our service. Father, I thank you so much for today and for this time that we have. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus and all that he is and did and continues to do for 
his disciples, those that he has loved, those that are among us, those that you love, and those that you have saved, are saving, and will save in the future. God, help us to look towards Jesus on mission and find ourselves with him. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us, especially if there's some of us that have not repented and believed in Jesus as our Savior to forgive us of our sins. I pray, Lord, that you would call us to do that, that you would move in our hearts to respond to you in that way, and that you would let us know so that we're able to encourage them and build them up. I pray, Father, we would grow in our walks with you so that our relationship with Christ is not just wooden, just ordinary, just repetitive, but, God, that we would know you deeper. And I pray, Lord, that you would send us on mission with Jesus because that is why he saved us, so that he may do great works through us. We thank you, Lord. May we respond now in song. God, help us to cry out and pour out our hearts to you in our voices, in our expressions, with our hands, with our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.